today. We're in this series entitled Breakthrough. And Breakthrough is a series on the Gospel of Mark. Started back at the first of the year. And uh, as I've shared every week, but it's important, I think, especially if you're fairly new, that uh, when Mark wrote this gospel, Mark wrote one of four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew wrote one, Mark and Luke. They all wrote about the same time. John wrote about 25, 30 years later. And the issue was that Christianity, you know, had had been around about 30 years now. And uh, the the first group of believers were getting kind of old. Some of them were tying off. And there was no written record, (coughs) excuse me, of the life of Jesus. So Mark wrote one. And Mark was really concerned about Gentiles. And so Mark went to Peter, Peter the apostle, got information from him, and really wrote an account that we have. And so what we're seeing today, we're going to be at at the place where it all kind of culminates, the climactic part of the whole gospel coming to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're in the 15th message of this series entitled Breaking the Power of Sin and found in Mark 15. Now, one of the things that I've shared with you throughout the series that's really critical is that when Jesus came, he came to replace and break apart the religious systems of that day, particularly Judaism, which had become not a matter of faith but of a system. But for the Gentiles, they were also trapped in a system. And by the time Mark wrote his gospel, as Gentiles were becoming more and more Christian, or as I might say, as Christianity was becoming more Gentile, he wanted them to understand what was at stake because there was no more, you know, just wicked, evil system than that of the Gentiles. It was based, first of all, on idolatry. They, they, they created gods in their imagination, gods and goddesses. And then they, then they took rock and they took uh, stones and, 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 and wood and, and whatever, and they carved these images and bowed down to the very things they created, which leaves nothing but a complete emptiness of what reality is. And then the way they treated humanity. I mean, people were nothing but objects. There was gross immorality. There was complete cruelty and inhumanity. This is a system you know, just void of any real moral content. And this was the world at that time. A world that was so trapped in sin. And here's the breakthrough that occurred. When Jesus came, at the cross, he broke the power of sin. At the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin they all experienced. So I'm going to share with you three things today. I want to begin by talking about the cross, because that is at the heart of the Christian faith. Who we are is because of the cross of Jesus. And when I speak of the cross, it is to speak of both the death and the resurrection. In 1986, a guy wrote a book. Now, the guy who wrote this book is named John R.W. Stott. My generation of preachers understand the significance of Stott. He profoundly influenced the way I think. In fact, outside of individuals I knew, there was no one who influenced me more than Stott. He was not just a brilliant scholar, but he was a pastor. So he could, take, he could take knowledge and he could take insight. And instead of making it technical, he could make it to where people could understand it. It was tremendous help to me. I am who I am today as a pastor, in large part because of Stott. In fact, you know, all across America, people will be sitting in churches with guys my generation preaching. And if we influence you at all, John R.W. Stott has influenced you. He wrote a book that when I read it right after it came out, as a young, young pastor, it changed the way I thought of ministry and it changed the way I thought of the cross. And the book was entitled, The Cross of Christ. And at the very beginning of the book, this is what Stott wrote. I could never myself 
believe in God if it were not for the cross. Understand what this brilliant pastor is saying. I can never believe in God if not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could you and I, who suffer so much, our own fault, but how could you and I truly worship a God who could not experience the pain we've experienced? And so we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 22 of Mark 15. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which translated place of the skull. In Latin, it's Calvary. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And that's it. Mark doesn't elaborate on crucifixion. Matthew doesn't. Luke doesn't. John doesn't. The amazing thing is the four guys who wrote about the life of Jesus, they, everything they wrote you know, was leading to the cross. It was all about the crucifixion and subsequently the resurrection. And they don't even go into detail. They just said he was crucified. That's it. And move on. Keep talking about the things that happened around the crucifixion. Crucifixion was probably, back then, the coolest way they knew to kill someone. It was just torture, physically, emotionally. It was just torture. And the reality is they didn't have to talk about crucifixion because everybody understood what crucifixion was. By the time Mark wrote his gospel, <clears throat> say about 60 AD, Nero was emperor in Rome. In a few years, Nero would begin the systematic persecution of Christians, which would go on basically for 250 years. And the primary way he had of torturing Christians was crucifixion. In fact, in a few years, he would begin the crucifixion of Christians. And some of the very people who were going to read the gospel of Mark would be crucified under Nero. In fact, the guy that shared the information that makes up most of Mark, Peter, would be crucified by Nero. If you want to know all the gory details, you know, all that was involved, you can go online and read it for yourself. I don't need to tell you. It was as bad a way to die. It was as bad a way to suffer as you can imagine. Verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, to wag their head is a sign of contempt. This, by the way, were all the Jewish leaders, basically, who had wanted to see Jesus dead, one by one by one by one, they would come and do these things. Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross, taunting Jesus. The truth of the matter is, they knew a lot of what Jesus said. In fact, the religious leaders probably understood what Jesus said even more than his followers. I mean, these were smart guys. And they understood the implications of what Jesus said. Verse 31 tells us that even the, the chief priest also, the highest of the high in the religious system, along with the scribes, the keeper of that system, they were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. I mean, they didn't necessarily believe that he saved other people. But they knew that that's what Jesus said he came for. And that's what people believed about Jesus. And saying he can save other people, he can't even save himself. How can he save other people if he can't save himself? And then in verse 32, let this Christ... The king of Israel. Now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also were insulted. So basically he said this, Jesus, we'll believe you. Just come off that cross. Come on. Do the impossible. In fact, they knew that Jesus had said numerous times. In fact, Mark records three times. That was a huge part of our series a few weeks back. Where Jesus said, I'll be betrayed. I'll be given over or killed. 
and I'll rise again. So they knew that somewhere in the teaching of Jesus, there was this idea that he had the power over death. And so they're taunting him, come down off that cross. Now, here's the thing. Jesus could have saved himself. But if he had saved himself, he couldn't save us. That goes all the way back two weeks ago when we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he had to make a choice. Will he obey the will of the Father and go to the cross and die for us? Or ask the Father to deliver him? And he chose the way of the cross. Now, hear these guys mocking him, basically tormenting him. They had completely rejected Jesus. And here's the thing you need to realize. The reason these guys rejected Jesus is because they didn't, wasn't because they didn't know what he was capable of. In fact, they said, come down and we'll believe. They wouldn't have believed. They had all the evidence they had needed. They knew the miracles. They knew what Jesus had done. Just, just a few miles from them was a guy who was living named Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And Jesus raised him back to life, and everybody knew it. They could have worshipped Jesus anytime they wanted. It wasn't a lack of information. It was a lack of faith. It was their desire to reject him. And why did they reject Jesus? Had he done something wrong? Not really. I mean, he taught a lot of good things. He healed a lot of people. They rejected him for one reason, and I've shared this with you over and over. One reason they rejected Jesus. He challenged their authority. He said, you don't speak for God. I speak for God. And ultimately, the reason people reject Jesus at all is he challenges all our authority. He tells us we can't be in charge of our life because we mess it up. But we need to trust him. And so here they had him on the cross And they scoffed him and mocked him on the cross. And understand this, how we view Jesus and the cross will reveal how we view Jesus every time. You look at the cross, and you look at the cross with skepticism and contempt and think it's for the weak-minded, that you don't need it. You're not going to look at Jesus as Savior. You're going to see him with skepticism, contempt, that Jesus is for the weak-minded and you don't need it. If the cross is a symbol, and it is, but if it's all it is, it's a symbol that you wear and you share, and it symbolizes hope or it symbolizes the possibility of a good life or faith, then you're going to look at Jesus as just a symbol. If you come to the cross and believe that, yes, Jesus died there, but he didn't take our sins upon him. He died there, and he died a sad, tragic death of a martyr. Then you're going to look at Jesus as a good teacher and a good example, but you're not going to look at him as Savior. But if you come to the cross and realize that Jesus died there in our place and on our behalf and took our sins upon him, you are, as Jesus said earlier, not far from the kingdom. Because you believe that he died for us at the cross. From the cross, we go to the suffering. Jesus suffered there. Now, two years ago, our Easter series was entitled Seven, The Seven Saves of Jesus at the Cross. This is going to be a great series. Man, we had stuff plastered all over the church, seven, 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 and then COVID hit right in the middle of it. You know? So we did it online, but you know, it, we talked about the seven things that Jesus said. On the cross, there are seven saves of Jesus. Mark has one. Matthew and Mark record the same thing. Now, Luke has three, and John has three. Mark has the, one, the fourth, the one kind of in the middle. As the cross started off, Luke records Jesus as saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Those who were actually crucifying him, Father, forgive them. And then he, when the thief that was hanging next to him 
says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The second thing Luke records. Now, Jesus saves the thief on the cross. I love the story of the thief on the cross. Here's why. The thief on the cross had the worst, worst faith ever. The worst faith ever. Who had faith worse than him? He didn't do anything. He didn't, it's hardly faith. He said, remember me. That's it. He didn't get baptized. He didn't do any good works. Never gave any money to the church. Not that it excuses you. He didn't, though. <laughs> He just died, saved. Then John records him saying, woman, to his mama, behold your son, to his cousin John, the disciple. And he said, behold the woman. And she took, he took her away, John, and probably came back. Then you have the saying that Mark and Matthew record. And then, you, then in succession, you have these sayings real quickly. John says, records Jesus as saying, I thirst. And so they gave him a little bit of wine to, to help him. And then he cries out, it is finished. And then Luke records him saying, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. Those are the seven things he said. The one in the middle, the cry of abandonment, that's the one Mark gives us. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, Mark uses the Jewish system of counting time. At sunrise was, was when it began, zero hour. And earlier, you know, Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That was 9 a.m. The sixth hour would be noon. And then the ninth hour would be three. For from, sixth, from noon to nine, it was dark. Now, in, you know, at the height of the midday sun, it was, it was dark. Now, a lot of effort goes into trying to figure out how the darkness came, and I get it, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I, I think of many times, especially going up in South Texas, uh, in the hill country, th- thunderstorms would come. And, um, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, it could just get dark. If there was going to be a lot of rain and maybe hell, you'd have your lights on. We've all been there. So it doesn't have to be pitch black. It's just that darkness came. Now, darkness matters because darkness probably symbolizes judgment. Upon Jesus is the judgment of God, which makes sense with what follows next. And at the ninth hour, that was right at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice what Jesus said is immensely personal. My God, you are my God, and you have forsaken me. There have been times in my life, and right now they come flooding to mind. When my struggle was so great, when my family's struggle was so great, I begged God to do something. When I was like, God, I love you. God, I trust you. God, I believe in you. You are my God. Would you do something for me? You've probably been there too, haven't you? That's what Jesus was. You're my God. You're my God. And he asked the question, why? I've asked that question before. God, why? Why? Why are we suffering? Why, why is my family suffering? Why is my daughter tormented so? Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you left me? You've abandoned me. Why? Well, he knew the answer, why? For a few hours earlier, he had been at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he understood the only way God could save us is if he abandoned Jesus. 
To abandon is to leave behind, but it doesn't just mean that Jesus was all alone. It means there was something that replaced God's presence. It was God's judgment. To be abandoned, forsaken, is to experience the full judgment of God. And on that cross, he took all our sins upon him. All of them. For all eternity. Now, I don't know how that works. I mean, I don't, I don't know how he could take all of that upon him, but he did. He did all that for us. I, I know there are people who say, well, you know, I don't know that I could worship a God who would, you know, allow that suffering or who's going to judge. Listen, <laughs> one of the things you need to realize in life is that you and I don't get to determine how God operates. We don't get to tell the creator how to deal with creation. And one of the consequences of our rejecting God, which is what we do, is that we have to suffer for it. Life is full of consequences. We understand that. <clears throat> we don't get to say, well, I don't like the fact that you're giving me those consequences, so I reject it. Listen, if I decide for some reason that I don't like the speed limit and I want to go past it and I get pulled over, I don't get to say, well, I rejected the speed limit because I don't think you have the right to give it to me, so you're not going to pay the ticket. No, I'm going to get it. I'm going to pay the consequences. We make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions every day that have consequences. If when the service is over, you decide you want to go have lunch at the new chicken place across the street, the consequence is you're going to wait in line for a really, really long time. Yeah, I know that. Debbie and I did that yesterday. We went actually inside, waited in line. God bless them. They did the best they could. It was swamped. When you reject God, you made that choice. He didn't make it for you. You made it. Oh, there are always consequences. And the consequences is the judgment. It's the absence. Forever. That's what Jesus experienced. In fact, get this. On the cross, Jesus suffered an eternity of hell for a moment. So you could have a moment of salvation for an eternity. He was only on the cross six hours, three hours he suffered for an eternity. I don't know how that works. I mean, eternity is like endless, and he got it all in, in just a few hours. I, I don't know how. The other day, it's like me saying, you know, last, you know, for, no, yesterday I spent an hour counting to infinity. You can't do that. The other day, actually, I, I always think of infinity as having no limits. You realize infinity does have a limits? I saw this video. I mean, it's, it's just these brilliant people, I don't even understand it, taught, showing through these mathematical formulas and equations how infinity has a limitation. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you may even be smart enough to explain it. I'm not that smart. And I'm not smart enough to understand how you can suffer for an eternity in a few hours. What he did. So that I can take a moment of my life at some point to follow him and have him save me for all eternity. Oh, man, I did that once. I did that. And he went to the cross for me so I could do that. He went for you. And he suffered separation. This was the suffering. Separation from God. This is what awaits all. We reject Jesus. You want to reject Jesus? You may. But you don't get to determine the outcome. You don't get to tell God how it's going to go down. That's his call. He gives you the opportunity through Christ. The cross, the suffering. And we have the victory. Oh, I love victory. You know, if I, I, I played ball for a long, long time. 
There's a lot of practice goes in. But there's nothing better than winning. Winning beats losing. Listen, <laughs> participation, participation ribbons, they for losers, man. <laughs> Victory is a feeling unmatched. And at the cross, there's no participation. There's victory. John records Jesus as saying, it is finished. The Greek word, to telestai, means to come to its end. He accomplished all that was to be accomplished. In the first place, God was through, through having judgment upon Jesus. The suffering was over. It was finished. And not only was that finished, but what was finished was Jesus paying the price for our sin. What was finished was everything that had to be done for you and I save the resurrection which was guaranteed. And then after that, Luke records him as saying, Father, into your hands I'm giving you my spirit. And he breathed his last because he made the decision when he died. Nobody else. That was victory for us so that we win in the end. Verse 37, Mark records it this way. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In, in the temple, there was this huge curtain that separated the holiest of holy places from everything else. And that, that curtain was separation. The holy of holies represented the presence of God. And no one could go back there but the high priest once a year on the day of the atonement. By the way, the high priest was Caiaphas, the guy who masterminded the death of Jesus. And in the place where only Caiaphas, the mastermind of the death of Jesus, could go, that curtain from the top to the bottom tore in two. He said, Caiaphas, you're no longer needed. The sacrifices are no longer needed. The whole system that you tried, tried to save by killing Jesus isn't needed by God anymore. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, can come to the Father through Christ. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last. Centurions, by the way, are always favorable in the New Testament. The centurion was the heart and soul of the Roman army. I mean, they were it. Those were tough, tough men who fought battles and killed people. He's one of them. And throughout the New Testament, centurions are always seen in a positive light. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, with all truth is what it means. This was the son of God. Matthew records him saying that as well. Luke records him as saying this man was a righteous man, innocent. Now, there are those who think that because he was a pagan in a Roman, that he wouldn't have had a concept of Jesus as the Son of God, and he was just making a, a statement just of, of amazement at what happened. But here's the thing. Luke tells us that he began to praise God. Now, Luke was a stickler for details. He said this guy was praising God. And the very fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share this is significant. In fact, the early church all understood this guy as a Gentile came to faith. Let me think about this for a moment. Hanging next to Jesus, Jesus was this Jewish criminal who came to faith, was the worst faith of all. And here was this hardened Roman soldier who proclaimed him the Son of God. It wasn't Caiaphas. It wasn't Pilate. It was these guys. Because any of these guys and these gals 
can come to Jesus. We can all experience victory. So here's what happened. Suffering led to victory. Oh, yeah. Suffering led to the defeat of sin. Suffering led to the breaking of all religious systems. Suffering led to a common criminal in a centurion coming to Christ. I wonder, when was the last time you ever thought about eternity? When was the last time you ever thought about what it would be like to suffer for all eternity? I mean, nobody likes to think that. And I know there are people who, you know, they reject the whole idea of life after death or suffering, all that. That's fine. And I don't spend a lot of time trying to convict them. I have friends that way. And, I, you know, we talk about it. I'm like, all right, that's your choice. Just think about this. So what if you're wrong? <laughs> what if you're wrong? See, all of us really know deep down there's something beyond this life. And even if you reject that, you want there to be something beyond this life, don't you? Nobody really wants to believe that when I die, that's it. My life had no meaning, no purpose. There's nothing for me beyond that, that I and my intellect and my soul and whatever, I just cease to exist. Everybody wants to live forever. And everybody will spend forever somewhere. All of you will spend forever somewhere. Jesus made it possible for you to spend forever with God. You see, when Jesus broke the power of sin, he guaranteed all of us the possibility of victory over sin if we follow him. Ah, there's that if, isn't it? If we follow him. But if you choose to reject him, so be it. I mean, you can prance around in all your arrogance, and you think that you're smarter than everybody else, and that you don't need anybody to help you. That's fine. But you will spend forever somewhere, whether you like to admit it or not. And Jesus made it possible for you to spend it with God for all eternity. He made that a reality. But he said, here's what has to happen. At the very beginning of his gospel, he came into the world saying, repent of all your sin. Trust me and follow me. And he made that a reality at the cross. There he broke the power of sin. The question is, did he break the power of sin for you? Or are you still trapped in that sin? Because you have stubbornly refused to trust Jesus. He didn't make it hard. He didn't make it complicated. In fact, he made it rather simple. He says, follow me. All you have to do is follow him. And you can do right this moment. You can take one moment to guarantee forever. Repent. And put away all your sin and acknowledge it. Trust him to save you. Commit to following him. Some of you who are followers of Christ already, well, are you living that way? Are you living like someone who's had their sins forgiven, who's had that power broken? Are you living your life 
under the power of sin. Why as a follower of Christ would you live under the power of sin? When it's already been broken, when you already have the victory, you've already won. Why are you living like you've lost? Some of you, who as followers of Christ, you know people who need Jesus. And this is Easter week. This is the big week. I know Christmas. That's the fun time. But this is the big time. You know people who may come to a pre-Easter service on a Thursday, who may come to an Easter service on Sunday. But you know people who need Jesus. And here's the thing. Some of you, you spend so much of your time on things that are so much not important. It just don't matter. Some of you spent all your time trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come again. For 2,000 years, people have tried to figure out when Jesus is going to come, and nobody's done it, and you won't be the first. Some of you spent so much time trying to solve all the ills of humanity, and I get it, but since the moment Cain killed Abel, man has been cruel to man, and you ain't going to change it. Not even a little. But what you can do to forever change someone's life is you can share Jesus. You can tell your story about how Jesus broke the power of sin in your life. And he can break the power of sin in their life if they will just follow him. So when are you going to start sharing that story? Come now to what we call our invitation. We sing a song, and some of the pastors will be here. And ladies, if you prefer to talk to another lady, there'll be probably a woman or two up here. Here's the thing we invite you to do. We invite you to follow Jesus, whatever that means, to join our church, if that's what it means. Whatever prayer you need to pray, we'll pray it or talk, we'll do. But we invite you to do this. Experience the power of broken sin. Experience victory in Jesus. So, Lord, we praise you and we honor you today. On the Sunday that remembers when Jesus came into the holy city and the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same Jesus who would go on a Friday and die on a cross and suffer for us and bring victory. And three days later, when he rose again, The power of Easter became real for all of us. And all we have to do is trust Jesus. All we have to do is follow him. So my prayer is simply this. In the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us, move us to follow Jesus. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.